Welcome to Open Spaces from Wyoming Public Radio News. I'm Bob Beck. And I'm Melody Edwards. This week, school districts balance the impact of budget cuts and learning. There's so much more here than just efficiencies and numbers. It's not a business. We're not building widgets. Many women who have filed sexual assault reports in Casper believe that their cases have been mishandled or neglected by law enforcement. So I'll continue to fight and I'll continue to raise a little hell. And And a story from Washington about how Republicans are arguing about climate change. Those stories and more are coming up on Open Spaces. Welcome to Open Spaces. From Wyoming Public Radio News, I'm Melody Edwards. And I'm Bob Beck. Wyoming's congressional delegation is thrilled with the executive order President Trump signed to unwind climate change initiatives. Correspondent Matt Laszlo has the story from Washington on how some in their party are not happy with the effort to roll back America's role in combating global warming. President Obama envisioned a clean energy future for America. But his hopes and dreams were set back with the stroke of President Trump's pen. The newly signed executive order sets in motion what promises to be a drawn-out legal process to unwind the clean power plan, which would have shuttered coal plants and moved the nation towards renewable energy. Wyoming Senator Mike Enzi says he's glad the president's working with the GOP to undo Obama-era regulations. Well, primarily the things that he shoved through in the last 90 days when he wasn't knew he wasn't going to be the president. And a lot of those were designed to actually gum up the works. And uh, we needed to reverse them. I don't think there's been a president that's put through that many before. States like New York and California are already vowing to fight Trump's effort in court. But the energy industry largely views the items as a positive step that will help their profit margins. As he says, it's already being felt at home. Uh, they'll, have a, they'll have a big impact. Uh, they've already had a big impact. I'm seeing articles about people who have new solutions for cleaner coal. Now, you don't go and invent things and put the money into building prototypes if it's going to be a, a source that's going to be disappearing. And uh, we've watched that before with coal. That's why some of the mine accidents happen. People quit inventing safety equipment for underground mines. Democrats are sensing it's a new day in Washington. Arizona Congressman Raul Gahalva is the top Democrat on the Natural Resources Committee. He says Trump's policies are bad for public lands out west. What Trump did with his executive order is uh, consistent with what industry wants him to do, and that is to uh, turn the public lands into uh, basically a, a real estate opportunity. And uh, especially for mining, they pay no royalties, so this is great for them. Grijalva says the GOP is rejecting science, which he says is evident in the new order to not take climate change into account when federal agencies write new rules. Underlining it all is uh, the whole climate denial, taking that rule out that said you must factor in impacts of climate change into your decision-making for the agencies. That's just, you know, uh, that's just a... the ignorance that's been expressed all the way through. It's not just Democrats. A small group of coastal Republicans whose districts are already facing sea level rise have banded together to start the Climate Solutions Caucus, 
which is a group of 13 Republicans and 13 Democrats looking for modest areas where the two parties can work together on environmental issues. Florida Republican Congressman Carlos Corbello helped form the group. What we're trying to do now is unwrap uh, that whole process and just expose what the reality of the environment and climate change is and, and hope that, that the facts and, and science and evidence will guide people's decision-making as opposed to reflexive politics. But Wyoming Republican Congresswoman Liz Cheney brushes aside those voices. I don't think we ought to be regulating carbon dioxide as a pollutant. Um, and I think that the, the requirement that the administration do that, that's left over from the last administration, is not supported by science. And we need to uh, undo that so that we really can begin the process of focusing on, frankly, what will help improve you know, our economy. But even many industry analysts doubt President Trump's claim that he can revitalize the coal industry because natural gas is so cheap and machines have taken over many of the former coal jobs. But Cheney remains optimistic. No, look, I think it can be. I mean, obviously they face market challenges with the price of natural gas, but I think getting the, this burden of regulation, you know, off of them um, so that they, they have to deal with market competition instead of, you know, being targeted by an administration that wants to kill them is really important and I think can go a long way. Cheney was in the middle of an effort to get rid of environmental regulations this week when President Trump signed an order to repeal so-called BLM 2.0, which sought to conserve Bureau of Land Management lands. It did a bunch of bad things, but one of the worst was it sort of re-centralized authority. It took a lot of decision-making out of the regional BLM offices, and it changed fundamentally the structure. So now, well, before BLM 2.0, our county commissioners and our local stakeholders really had a seat at the table. You know, they were cooperating agencies, so the BLM had to take their view into account as we were doing land use planning. Um, what 2.0 would do is essentially dilute all of that input. Still, Democrats are now looking to the courts as their last defense against the aggressive effort by Republicans to deregulate. So you haven't heard the last of these debates. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Matt Laszlo in Washington. Coal country was celebrating this week when Interior Secretary Ryan Zinke lifted a coal moratorium signed into law by the Obama administration 14 months ago. But now the question is whether coal companies will even decide to expand their production in states like Wyoming. With the price of natural gas so low, coal has been having a hard time competing. But if and when companies do expand, their first stop is the Bureau of Land Management to submit an application. Right now, BLM has 11 applications, but all but one one was submitted over 10 years ago. I sat down with BLM spokesman Brad Purdy and Solid Minerals Chief Brenda Newman to talk about whether they expect to see more now that the coal pause is over. Well, uh, I think it was yesterday. The coal pause was lifted by Secretary of the Interior Ryan Zinke. Uh, so now I think the biggest impact here in Wyoming will be we're able to take in new applications for coal leasing. You know, maybe you can kind of tell me what, what was the sort of the mood around the office when that was happening. Does that make your life harder, easier? What, what was your reaction? You know, here at BLM, we are policy implementers, not uh, policy makers. So I don't know if there was a good or a bad mood. Uh, we're ready to do the work. Um, we always work with the applicants. Uh, we were working with them under the coal pause. We'll continue to work with them now that the coal pause is gone. Um, there's been lots of new coal leases in the recent past. These are things that have just been kind of, you guys have been working on for kind of a while. Uh, most of the leases have been. We have gotten a new lease in the Powder River Basin in 2016, and that was during the pause, or right before the pause. So we did accept that lease, 
and um, we are starting to work on that. So, so um, can you kind of talk me through just what the process is? Does a company come to you and say, yeah, I'd like, we'd like to expand. What do you have? What, where do, how does it work? So, you know, most leases now are either by lease by application or lease modification. Um, so the company does approach us. So it is very much market driven. Uh, so as the companies recognize a need for additional federal coal, they, they approach the BLM with their application and we begin working on it. Maybe you could give me an example um, of just one of them that, and kind of just talk about where is it at right now and where did it start and where is it going? Sure. So probably the most recent one that is being worked on is the West Antelope 3. Uh, I do believe that was a coal lease by application. Uh, it's about 3,500 acres, 441 million tons of coal. And uh, right now the BLM is preparing the Federal Register notice of our notice of intent to uh, scope it. That's us engaging the public and prepare a draft EIS. So that's where that one's at. And that's you know, getting along in the in the process. Okay, and so are they going to, um, once you kind of work through this process, they'll be ready? Because you had mentioned when we talked that sometimes companies aren't necessarily ready even once you guys are ready. Sure, yeah, it is possible that, you know, after we complete the NEPA review, we get to a, the point where we're issuing a decision uh, and then we're ready to have the coal lease sale. From time to time, a company will come to BLM and say, you know, we're not exactly ready for that track of coal yet. So we just pause the lease sale. Where do you think now that the moratorium has been lifted, is that is there going to be more interest in moving on some of these? Even, you know, some of these companies like Antelope, that, that they have these, they're ready to go. Are they going to be ready to move on them? Well, I think time will tell. As new applications are submitted, and you know, that will let us know that there's, there's new interest out there. So uh, only time will tell on that. Yeah, you, and it's just really up to those companies and whether the market maybe is viable for them to move on these? Yeah, sure. You know, BLM, we're going to take in the application. We're going to do the uh, NEPA analysis, the National Environmental Policy Act uh, analysis that needs to be done, and then we'll issue a decision. That's where what BLM's role is. As far as, you know, the markets go, again, that's driven by the, these companies. When they feel like they're ready to start moving on a new track of coal, they will submit their application to BLM and we will process it. Um, if, you know, the coal industry has, you know, has a uptick and then we'll see more applications if it doesn't then you know things will go along as they have been for the past few years and is is this process that we've just been kind of looking at here mm -hmm. is it something that happens quickly or what are the steps maybe you can kind of just talk about timeline wise how long some of these things take sure it, it is a very in-depth process that the NEPA analysis and the things that are required that BLM does it takes time you know moving through uh, the bonding onto the mine permitting, that also takes time. Th that's done by uh, other um, agencies. Um, but, you know, it, it does take time because it is a thorough NEPA analysis. And BLM wants to make sure that we look at these projects and we analyze them effectively and uh, we come to a very, very good decision. That was BLM spokesman Brad Purdy and Solid Minerals Chief Brenda Newman talking about the Interior Secretary Zinke's recent decision to lift the coal ban. When we come back, we'll talk about manufacturing in the state. This is Open Spaces.
Welcome back to Open Spaces. I'm Melody Edwards. And I'm Bob Beck. The Wyoming legislature passed legislation this session to extend the sunset that provides a manufacturing machinery sales tax exemption. It's a little more exciting than it sounds. Turns out this is a big deal for manufacturers. The legislature pushed the sunset on the tax back 10 years. The Alliance of Wyoming Manufacturers urged lawmakers to pass the legislation, and their chief lobbyist, Bob Jensen, joins me to discuss the importance of the new law. Yeah, this is an important uh, component of uh, incenting manufacturing businesses in Wyoming to continue to grow. And basically what the bill does is extends the sunset for the exemption for the purchase of equipment used in the manufacturing process. So there's a sales tax exemption for capital investment for uh, machines or other pro- uh, you know pieces of equipment that are used in the process of manufacturing whatever the manufacturing company is making. And so that capital investment, the sales tax on that capital investment is uh, exempted from sales tax. I I would assume the reason you would do something like this is it encourages a company to come here and then knowing that later when they develop a product, you tax that. Well, that's right. Uh, Ultimately, the sale, the ultimate sale of the product is then where the tax should be uh, charged. But yes, it's, it's both an incentive for companies to locate here but it's also um, an incentive for manufacturing companies that are already here to stay here. Uh, There's 37 other states that have a similar um, exemption uh, or incentive for the purchase of equipment used in manufacturing. And um, so, I mean, it essentially keeps us even with those other states in terms of our incentive package, but it also helps us uh, be, uh, you know, Keep, it helps us have the ability to keep our existing companies from being recruited to other states as well. In 2004, this was passed, and in, in, in part of that legislation initially was to look at the economic impact of this just to make sure that it was, it was going like everyone had planned. Do you recall what the economic impact of this has been, and, and has it worked? You know, this is one tool in a... Uh, uh, tool chest of tools that we want to use to try to make uh, our state competitive with other states in terms of our our business base, and so the exemption itself, in and of itself, is not the only reason why manufacturing companies come come here or stay here. But the use of the of the incentive has been a part of the growth of the industry. We. Manufacturing has taken, you know, from uh, like a 2% of the uh, overall GDP gross domestic product of the state to uh, somewhere close to 6% of the overall GDP, which uh, is a significant player in a state that is dominated by the mineral industry and the, and the extraction industry. So. So in, in terms of its growth, uh, the ability to grow in the industry, um, yes, the, the incentive has uh, been useful to help that industry grow. And then, of course, manufacturing jobs in general have increased, and the wages of those jobs have increased at a faster pace than in other jobs in the state as well. 
Well, in, in the return, I mean, while well, we're starting to see a downturn in, in revenue and, and tax revenue from some of the other companies, specifically in the world of energy, hasn't manufacturing been doing okay? Manufacturing has been growing. Now, you know, everything has, uh, the, the mineral industry has an impact on everything. So a downturn in the mineral industry will have, you know, some sort of a corresponding effect on the manufacturing sector, but also the services sector, lots of other sectors that that uh, are related to the manufacturing sector, I mean, to the mineral sector. So, um, so while they've been doing very well, uh, they've sort of leveled off a little bit um, in this, in this uh, minerals downturn. A lot of the manufacturing that has been done, some of it at least, has been related to the mineral industry. So, uh, so those jobs and those companies are less busy than they were before. But the fact that uh, there's more manufacturers, there's more uh, companies, there's more people involved in manufacturing, and they're involved in a variety of different aspects of manufacturing, not just supporting the mineral industry, uh, it bodes well for a continued economic diversification in the state. And that's, at the end of the day, that's really what we need is more companies that are not tied directly to the mineral industry. Holland and Hart's Wyoming Director of Government Affairs, Bob Jensen, visiting with us, who also used to head up the Wyoming Business Council, wanted to ask you a little bit about that. Is I, I know there used to be a big frustration that we didn't make stuff in Wyoming and, and that that was something that really needed to change. And, and I'm curious, as you get this exemption and, and you look to the future with the governor's initiative of diversifying the economy, how much of a player do you think manufacturing might be in that? I think it'll be a major player. There's no question that, uh, as I just said, the manufacturing industry has grown in the state over the last 10 years, and uh, or even more than that, for 12 or 13 years since the exemption came on in 2004. And, uh, and also the diversity with which uh, those industries uh, for manufacturing for the state are uh, beneficial to uh, the economic diversity is, is important. So the companies that uh, are involved in the Alliance of Wyoming Manufacturers do everything from uh, refine oil into uh, fuels. They uh, take uh, metal products and fabricate them into gears and other structural steel products. They manufacture uh, components related to the firearms industry. They take uh, raw wood products and manufacture those into uh, building materials and, and uh, high-value products. So, I mean, there's a wide variety of membership in the alliance, and there's an even wider variety of, of companies that are involved in manufacturing. There's over 1,000 companies that manufacture something in Wyoming. What else has helped that industry? It struck me that years ago, one of the problems we had was uh, technology and that type of thing, and then certainly we're in a remote place. Uh, what has also changed in manufacturing? I'm just curious that that has really helped it along. We've focused quite a bit on uh, training up a workforce that is technically sound. Of course, as you look at manufacturing jobs, welding and things like that are very important, but they're increasingly more and more technical. And our community colleges and our university uh, have stepped up and are training employees uh, to work in this manufacturing sector 
So that's one aspect of the workforce that's helped a lot to be able to help grow manufacturing. The other one is some of the improvements that we've made in logistics. So there's been a lot of investment in various parts around the state to improve rail access and rail availability. And so anytime you can lower your uh, transportation costs, um, that essentially helps you mitigate issues with uh, proximity to markets. Bob Jensen, again, is Holland and Hart's Wyoming Director of Government Affairs. Bob, it's always nice chatting with you. Thank you so much. As a child on Montana's Crow Reservation, Peggy White, well-known Buffalo, was taken from her home, put on a bus, the first she had ever seen, and sent to a Bureau of Indian Affairs boarding school out of state. She was punished for speaking her language and for following traditional Crow spiritual practices. We meet her in this edition of The Mountain West Voices with Clay Scott. I was driving through the Crow Reservation in southeastern Montana on a cold, gray day with a hard rain that wouldn't let up, and I noticed an unusual-looking cluster of buildings surrounded by cottonwood trees. I parked by a locked gate where a hand-painted sign read, Well-Known Buffalo Center, Empowering Youth to Promote a Just Future. A spindly-legged foal took shelter on the porch of a house, and a couple of dogs watched me. It was raining too hard to get out of the car, but I was too curious to leave, After a few minutes, a woman emerged from the house without a raincoat. She didn't seem at all surprised to see me, and we went inside to talk. My name is Peggy White, well-known Buffalo. That's my um, white English name. My Indian name is Bala Sashilish, meaning um, one who has abundance. I live here in Garyon, Montana, and um, I live at the foothills of where the Battle of the Little Bighorn took place. This is my uh, my family's allotted land where I built my home. Is where the Sioux and Cheyenne children hid and mothers hid while the Battle of the Little Bighorn was going on. I was raised on a reservation. I believe in the Crow way. My life is the Crow way. I was sent to an Indian boarding school in South Dakota called Peer Indian School. And it was in the 60s. I was very young. And um, my mother had eight kids. And through the eight kids, my mother had to select half of them to go to a boarding school, and she could keep the other half. She had to give my father's allotted land to the state of Montana to support the other four. So my mother chose me. And when I got there, I was also scared. And I was also told not to speak Crow, my Crow language, Absalogo language. And it was a lot of Crow kids that were taken. And a bus came and picked us up. And I never rode in a bus before. I 
had to work, um, clean things. They started me as cleaning. I was younger, so they had me go to the little girls and little boys' dorm, which were young kids, babies, and toddlers, to go and um, clean them up. But I always went, I held them, and um, they would just hold on to me. And some of them were very thin. But I held them, and I'd pray, and I'd sing to them. But, you know, I, I was singing my lullaby songs in Crow, and no one got mad at me. I went there just to speak my language to these kids that because I couldn't do it anywhere else. So I'll talk to them in Crow, and I'll sing lullabies, and hold them, carry them, clean them, and... Every time uh, I work on a child, it's 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 what you call a massage in your Western ways, but in a traditional Crow way, we call it Bapajala, Bagadhoase, the one who treats children, the one who takes care of children. And that's what I do. You've been listening to Peggy White, well-known Buffalo. Mountain West Voices is produced in association with the O'Connor Center for the Rocky Mountain West, a regional studies and public education program of the University of Montana. Additional support was provided by the Greater Montana Foundation. To listen to and download more stories from around the Rocky Mountain West, go to mountainwestnews.org. I'm Clay Scott. When we come back, we'll learn about issues some women in Casper are having with the police department over sexual assault cases and a look at how school districts are dealing with funding cuts. This is Open Spaces. This is Open Spaces from Wyoming Public Radio News. I'm Melody Edwards. And I'm Bob Beck. During the last legislative session, Wyoming educators asked the legislature to use reserves to cover the deficit, but instead they stuck them with a $34 million funding reduction. Wyoming Public Radio's education reporter Tennessee Watson went out to see how three neighboring districts are dealing with this. Every superintendent will tell you the goal is to keep cuts far away from the classroom and to hang on to as many teachers as possible. Contracts to teachers are due April 15th, so district school boards are in the midst of figuring out what else in their budgets can go. First stop on my tour to figure out what districts are thinking is Campbell County, where Superintendent Boyd Brown tells me... All of it's on the table. He starts rattling off the possibilities. It's a long, indefinite list at this point, so I invert my question. What won't get cut? He takes me to the bus loop in front of Twin Spruce Junior High School. That's a huge equity issue for making sure kids are at school and able to... get the education that they need. He's talking about transportation. 
which is close to 8% of his budget. How's it going? Who are the two Pierce kids? All right. Superintendent Brown introduces me to Hope and Archie Pierce, who've just unfolded themselves from a 75-minute ride to school. You, so you win the award for riding the bus the furthest. Well, we live two miles away from the Montana border, so it's pretty far out there. That's Archie, and his sister Hope explains their journey starts in a suburban because the bus can't get up the road. We live on a hill, and it's, it's sketchy. Legally, schools have to provide transportation, but Brown is concerned that if cuts continue, the quality of education that kids show up for will begin to deteriorate. We are at the point where, you know, we cut 10% two years ago, cut 10% out of our non-salary benefits last year. We're looking at cutting again this year. Pretty soon you can't cut outside of people. And when you start cutting people, you're cutting services. Brown has asked his principals to brainstorm with staff about school-level efficiencies. The biggest surprise was hearing that a teacher suggested reducing the number of toilets and urinals as a cost-saving measure. But it's precisely that kind of creative thinking that's kept Campbell County's neighbor, Sheridan District 3, afloat. I head west from Gillette, past the coal mines, into the Black Hills, to Claremont, to meet Sheridan District 3 Superintendent Charles Osge. We're one of the smallest school districts in the state of Wyoming. We currently serve about 100 kids. We start off on a tour of the school. Osge points out the library, the art room, and the multi-grade level classrooms. Okay, so this is our multi-purpose room. It's here that Osge shows off his hard work to make his district run more efficiently in the face of impending reductions. To be more efficient, as we're talking about, we reduced our custodial staff because I went to machines like these. He points out two devices parked in the corner. They're basically mini street cleaners that allow staff to cruise the school, rapidly vacuuming up dirt and crumbs from snack time. Reducing custodial staff has kept teachers in the classroom. And since it takes a special kind of teacher to thrive at Sheridan 3, once Osgi finds a match, he wants to keep them. So Mr. Doak is our Spanish teacher, so what class do you have in here right now? This is Spanish 1. Spanish 1. He's half-time foreign language, but he's also elementary certified. So in the mornings, he helps with the literacy blocks, and then he teaches Spanish to the 712 students in the afternoon. So Then we drop by what used to be the nurse's office, which is now called the first aid station. So through some of the budget cuts and stuff we've done over time, we reduced the nurse, and now we have Joni, who does an amazing job. She does as an administrative assistant. She's the first aid station. She does a lot of things. She also delivers lunch to Arveda. So she plays multiple roles. Part of what he's up against is the cost of doing business in rural Wyoming. He points out that everything from shipping supplies to hiring contractors to fix things comes at a premium. We're, we're out in the middle of nowhere um, in some beautiful country, but the cost of doing business is what we need to be able to tell the recalibration committee this uh, summer. He's referring to the group appointed by the legislature to overhaul the school funding model. When they meet starting this spring, he wants to see them improve something called the regional cost adjustment. But he's worried that recalibration might just bring more cuts. When I go to leave, I ask Osgi for his business card. I buy this out of my own pocket. <laughs> That's our cost-saving measure. You just buy it on your own. That raises an important point about the ways teachers and staff personally absorb reductions. My next stop is the Bighorn School to meet Marty Kobza, superintendent in Sheridan 1. Within the last five years in our district, our teachers have received um, a step in pay one time. 
and obviously looking at being the, the same way again. And Kobza says take-home pay has actually decreased. He points specifically to the increase in the cost of health insurance, while the money allotted in the state budget for benefits reimbursements has stayed the same. The one thing that kind of is frustrating to hear sometimes is when I hear certain legislators, as they talk about it, they say education needs to do its fair share. They need to take the cuts like everybody else. His district has already gone down from a staff of 120 in 2008 to 91 this year, and they'll be at 88 next year. So what does this look like for teachers at the Bighorn School? I bump into Tina Moline in the parking lot. She teaches 6th, 7th, and 8th grade math, science, and reading. She also coaches two sports. For us in the middle school, we lost two teachers last year. And so now, not only is there just more kids, there's more grading, there's more parents to meet with. And less teachers means fewer hands for the things that keep kids excited about school. There's the behind-the-scenes things that people don't always think about. You see just a classroom teacher, but you forget about the concessions. You forget about um, planning things. And I really believe in hands-on things, and I like to take the kids out, and we all do. Everybody pitches in in different ways to make that happen, whether it's donating time from their classes or you know going with as a chaperone or, or helping out with the fundraising. Everybody pitches in, but it's just one more thing added to everybody's load, you know. But districts are funded to provide content in nine key academic areas. All the other stuff that contributes to learning in a school falls outside the funding model. School boards will have to contend with what matters most as they finalize next year's budgets in the coming weeks. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Tennessee Watson. A bigger conversation about how to prioritize education in the state will continue with the school funding model recalibration beginning April 3rd. Tennessee Watson will be following the story. In the last year, over 30 women have approached the Casper City Council to express their frustration with how the Casper Police Department dealt with their sexual assault cases. The women allege that their cases were either mishandled or neglected by law enforcement. Wyoming Public Radio's Maggie Mullen reports. It's a quiet afternoon in Casper, shortly before Amy Kidd will need to leave her house to go pick her children up from school. On her lap is her five-month-old daughter, Naomi. And I look at her some days and I'm just like, hello, little baby, I love you so much. And I'm so happy she's here. I just, I can't, I can't believe it. When Kid found out she was six weeks pregnant, she says she also found out she had been raped. After a long stretch of exhaustion and illness, Kid made an appointment to see a doctor and they had her take a pregnancy exam. When they told me the date of conception, that's when I looked back at my calendar and remembered I had gone out that night with a couple of girlfriends. That night was in late January of 2015. Kid says she'd gone out with friends and they ran into some male acquaintances. At some point, Kid says she went to the bathroom and when she got back, one of the men had bought her a beer. The next thing she says she remembers is waking up in her own bed without any pants on and no memory of how she'd gotten home. She knew the man that had bought her the drink, 
so she called him. What did you do to me that night? What happened? His answer was, I can't believe you don't remember, and the way you were moaning, I know you liked it. Kid says she believes she was drugged, because that would explain her memory loss and how sick she felt the morning after. Shortly after the doctor's appointment, Kid reported the incident to the Casper Police Department, and two officers came to her house to get her statement. That was on March 12, 2015. It was just a couple of normal, everyday street cops, and they were amazing. Kid says she briefly heard from a detective in early May, but never heard from anyone after that. In September, she went to a Casper City Council meeting and was planning to speak about a spike in her water bill, but decided to ask why her investigation was taking so long. So I just, you know, talked to them. I was nervous and emotional, and I was really informal because it was my first time at a city council meeting. I didn't know what I was doing. And At that time, Councilwoman Amanda Huckabay had not yet been elected. She says Kidd was one of three women to approach the former council and mayor with similar frustrations that fall. When she took office, Huckabee says she contacted those three women to ask about their cases and says she found a domino effect had been put into play. Those three women reached out to other women that had reached out to them. And to this point, we have, I'm guessing, about 30 to 35 emails from various women in the community that are either themselves victims of sexual assault or domestic violence or their children have been. Huckabee says the emails sent to city council members allege that sexual assault cases were being reported but then neglected or mishandled by the police. There seems to be a pattern of police officers responding to these types of situations and asking women, are you sure you just don't like it rough? Chief of Police Jim Wetzel declined an interview with Wyoming Public Radio, saying he could not comment due to Wyoming law. The executive director of the self-help center in Casper, Jennifer Dyer, says that same law may be partly responsible for some of the women's frustrations. She says the police can only disclose so much information to avoid identifying and accidentally implicating the accused. And there are some state statutes that are limiting too, that we're kind of looking at as a, as a community of, of maybe changing some of that language because sometimes the language of that particular statute actually is protects the offender more than it protects the victim. The legal process of sexual assault can be very long. So Dyer says she wasn't surprised when women started coming to the city council with their frustrations. From the time that that's reported to the time that would go to trial, how long of a process is and every step that kind of goes in and all of the moving parts that are within that. So I guess it's not shocking that victims would feel that way. The Self-Help Center provides counseling and support groups, among other services. The center is separate from the police department, and Dyer says it's more of the role of victim services to work with clients through the criminal justice process. Leslie Fritzler is the victim service specialist at the Casper Police Department, whose job it is to help victims understand what's going on during a long-term investigation, like sexual assault. She says she understands how difficult the process can be. I mean, I certainly acknowledge that victims become frustrated and um, they um, want to make sure that they feel like their cases are being dealt with and that they're receiving the answers that they want. But many of the women say they weren't hearing from victim services. When asked about this, Fritzler was hesitant to answer. Well, I guess I would probably reserve um, 
making any comments on that because we can't acknowledge if we have um, particular cases that are being investigated or not. One of the reasons Amy Kidd is pushing so hard is she fears the man who she says raped her will exercise his parental rights and sue her for custody. So I'll continue to fight and I'll continue to raise a little hell and make sure the city officials and the chief of police and the city manager and the mayor and the city council are all aware that this is a huge problem and I'm not the only one. Kid says since she became so vocal, 47 women have privately contacted her saying they too have had problems getting answers about their sexual assault cases. That's in addition to the 30 women that directly contacted the city council. The Casper Police Department has not directly responded to any of the charges, but they will host a community panel discussion regarding the challenges of investigating and prosecuting cases of sexual assault. It's April 6 at 7 p.m. at Durham Hall on the Casper College campus. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Maggie Mullen. When we come back, we will meet a World War II oral historian from Sheridan. This is Open Spaces. Welcome to Open Spaces. I'm Melody Edwards. And I'm Bob Beck. Sheridan resident Val Burgess has put a lot of miles on her car, speaking to schools and others about the experiences of World War II vets and prisoners of war. Burgess is finishing up another round of talks next month. Her talks have helped students learn about those who served in the war. She explains how she became an oral historian. My uncle was at my grandmother's funeral and wanted to go back to his prison camp he'd been held in during the war. He kept talking about it, and I finally said, well, what are you talking about? And he said, well, I want to go back, but I don't have anybody to do the marketing materials because he wanted to take a large group back. I offered to do that for very selfish reasons. I simply wanted to go back to Europe. And then we sent out 3,000 letters, and these human beings started calling me and telling me amazing stories And I asked my uncle, has anybody ever recorded them? And he said, no, I don't think so. And so I started my first oral history in the summer of 1994. And I just kept going. I interviewed, we had 125 POWs and 200 200 members of their family. And we traveled 17 days in Europe. And we literally saw those countries through their eyes. And I really felt like I'd never done anything. And so I started down this path doing the oral histories. And there were times my husband and I would say, we got to quit spending all this money on this. You've got to quit traveling so much. Okay, okay, we'll quit, we'll quit. And ultimately, we sat down and we decided that would we regret it when we were older that we did not do the work? Or would we be grateful for having done the oral histories and collected this history? And it was, you know, that's a no brainer. It was do the work. So here we are 23 years later, and it's still going. What did you feel that you learned that that maybe surprised you or, or or you didn't anticipate? I think it's the things that they appreciated and the fact that they had no fears. So the things that they appreciated were the simple things in life. One man sent me a novel he finished when he was 84. His name was David Westheimer, who wrote 20 novels in his lifetime. He wrote the screenplay for The Days of Wine and Roses. He wrote Von Ryan's Express and all these other books. But 
he, he talks about in his last novel, and it's a compilation of a number of POWs. This POW escapes from a prison camp, and he ends up with some GIs. He's not supposed to escape because the war is still going on, but he ends up with these GIs. And they say, God, you smell so bad. You know, you want to get a uniform, we'll take you. So they arrange for him to be able to purchase a uniform. He's got his ID from prison camp, and he writes a check on a piece of paper, and they let him buy a uniform. But they, the man who sold it to him said, you know, you smell so bad. you got fleas and lice all over. You need to take a shower. So he hands him a towel and a bar of soap, and the man smells, and, and the POW smells the bar of soap and gets an erection. It's been two and a half years since he smelled anything that good. And the towel against his face was just, he hadn't felt that in many, a long, long time. When he was going into the shower, he put his feet on carpet and he took his shower and he got cleaned up, but he could still rub all the dirt off. And he looked over at a sweater that his mother had knitted him that was lying on the floor with his filthy clothes. And he wanted to take it with him, but it smelled so bad. He just had to leave it. And he hoped that she would give him another someday. He went to a gas house with some GIs and he had his hand on a table and a German woman came over and touched it. And he realized it had been two and a half years since a woman had touched his hand. But these men came back, and because they understood that fine line between life and death, they had no fear. They would apply for jobs. I mean, we had the largest per capita, probably, of people in uh, post-secondary education in the history of our country. I mean, we built built interstate highways. um, We brought lots of technology back to the United States. We... You know, I've interviewed the man who, a man who worked with uh, all the 128 rocket scientists who came back from, who who immigrated from Germany um, and built NASA. He worked with them. Um, I've interviewed a man who wrote the uh, legislation for us to have seatbelts in our car. I think they just knew that they were alive, they were happy to be alive, and wanted to build our country and make it a place that they were proud of, and they did. One of the interesting things you hear is uh, there sometimes appears to be some criticism directed towards our current veterans because mm-hmm. you'll hear people say, well, these guys seem to have PTSD and, and, and problems where back then they didn't. Uh, what, what's been your experience? Well, well um, most of them, the, the prisoners of the Japanese, um, it's a wonder they were normal or even semi-normal. I've spent a lot of time with um, a group called the Fifth Air Base, and you can touch them on the shoulder and they'll break into tears and they have to compose themselves. When they tell stories to me, many times they'll get to a place and they just have to stop because they're so emotional. They can't believe they could be treated in the way that they were by the Japanese. It was so, so hard on them. And then to come home, I wish my only regret with this work is that I did not interview the wives because the wives kept these men you know, they were that post that held them together. One day I was with a POW who was in the European theater, and I said, well, do you know about PTSD? And he says, hell, I've got PTSD. Yeah, I've got night terrors. And, you know, they went about it in different ways. They, well, alcohol was certainly something that, you know, our government, when they came back from flights, gave them alcohol every, every time, whether it was rye or whiskey, whatever. So they learned to like alcohol. And I don't know if some of them, I mean, I think a lot of them self-medicated. Um, some of them didn't, but um, a number of the POWs wanted to work in the Postal Service because it was steady, regular. They knew what they could count on, and they didn't have to be fearful because they came home really different people. And, you know, I've talked to a lot of children of these veterans, and I say, you've never known the man before the war. And they go, oh, I never thought of that. 
because every one of them is changed by war. And so our soldiers coming home today, they have seen the unseeable. You know, we don't understand what they have, the stress or the fear. And, and numerous men that I've interviewed, Len Robinson from Casper, Wyoming, who was a baton death marcher, he said that there were three things he forgave immediately. And he was a Christian, so he believed in Jesus. So when he got to Tokyo from Nagata, he forgot, forgave the Japanese completely. He was never going to open that, you know, turn that page back. He was going to walk away from all that he felt and forgive. And then he believed in Jesus Christ. And he said, and I told my story, not all the gory details, but I told my story. And it's so important to be comfortable with your story because it is what happened to you. And some of them are just unbelievable stories. You go, God, that couldn't happen, but it did. When, what, what do they say about war today? Well, most, a lot of them have said we need to find a better way. Mel Burgess is traveling the state of Wyoming these days. Uh, these public and school programs are supported in part by a grant from the Wyoming Cultural Trust Fund, a program of the Department of State Parks and Cultural Resources. And I know, Val, as uh, months go on, you're, you're always uh, willing and, and probably able to go and talk to a number of groups. Hopefully this continues. I, I, I know you value these conversations, and the school children you've had a chance to speak with in particular are, are learning a lot. It, it's our pleasure having you on our program, and thank you for joining us. Thank you. I appreciate it. Take care. Val Burgess will be speaking in Northeast Wyoming next week. was produced by Jennifer Jarrett. Thanks for listening to Open Spaces. If you missed part of the show or want to hear a segment again, go to wyomingpublicmedia.org and click on Open Spaces. There you can also pitch us ideas for future segments and comment on our stories. You can also get our weekly podcast so that you never miss a segment. Anna Rader is our web editor. Open Spaces is a production of Wyoming Public Radio News.